Acts chapter 1. We've already seen, and perhaps it would be good to back up to get the context, but we've already seen that the Gospels present the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. It's what Jesus began to do and to teach. He came here visibly, physically. He touched Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria. He touched Galilee with His presence. People flocked around Him. He healed people. He raised people from the dead. He taught magnificent things. But that was just the beginning. It's wrong to think that the ministry of Jesus ended when He died, rose, and ascended into heaven. It continues. And that's why Luke begins the book of Acts saying, The former account that I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. The next several verses speak about Jesus after the resurrection. He spent 40 days, by many infallible proofs, among those who believed in Him. During that time of meeting with different people for 40 days, an ongoing ministry, He gave His disciples a commission, and the book of Acts is revolved around that commission. The commission is in verse 8 that says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, in Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And the book of Acts follows that outline perfectly. It goes in stages. The gospel goes to Jerusalem. Persecution arises. It goes to the clans and the towns of Judea. Persecution arises there. The people flee to Samaria. The gospel is penetrated in Samaria through Philip. Persecution breaks out there. The disciples move north to Antioch. All the way into the Roman Empire and to Rome itself. That is the commission. And now, in the next couple verses, we see the ascension where Jesus rises into heaven and then finally the promise of the second coming. So if you want to picture the scene, Jerusalem is many hills. Uh, Jesus walked from the old city down a hill through the Kidron Valley, filled with olive trees. Passing on the left would be the Garden of Gethsemane, going up a steep road to the very top of the Mount of Olives. Jesus gathers His disciples, gives them this commission, and He ascends into heaven. And so it says, Now when He had spoken these things, while they watched, that He was taken up and a cloud received Him out of their sight, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come again in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. It's a quick walk. And when they entered, they went up into the upper room where they had been staying, Peter, James, John, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. If you were to go on one of the trips to Israel with us, we would point out but not visit three of the authentic places that Jesus ascended into heaven from. You say, now wait a minute, how can you have three? I thought, you know, you go up, you're up. And indeed, that's the case. But there are three different churches, sects, religious Christian churches, all having the authentic spot. Nobody knows what the spot is, but people have come along and made a big deal out of location. And so they venerate the spot. They build a church facility on it with a high tower ascending up into heaven. And, you know, if you're into that, fine. But if you are, you probably shouldn't come to one of our tours because we're not into it. We don't visit churches when we're in Israel. We visit the land. We hang out on the land and really see it as it was. But there is a church, the Church of the Ascension on the Mount of Olives, one of them, that claims to have the footprint of Jesus in bedrock, and that he left that footprint as he, you know, sort of touched off and ascended into heaven. 
And they will show you the footprint of Jesus as he ascended into heaven. Truth of the matter is, that church is wrong and the other church is wrong because it says in the Gospel of Luke that Jesus took his disciples as far as Bethany, which is on the backward slope of the Mount of Olives. And there he ascended into heaven. And so they should have just read Luke and not just the book of Acts. They would have been uh, probably, well, maybe someone will build one there. Who knows? Now, picture the disciples so excited after Jesus rose from the dead. Sort of a thing like, he's back. This is wonderful. We saw him die on the cross. He's with us. And as they gather together, their question in verse 6 is, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They figured, I don't know what the cross was all about. All I know is you're back with us. And because we're Jewish and we know the scriptures, the next logical step is for you to establish your kingdom with Israel. We're familiar with Isaiah 11, Jeremiah 23, Ezekiel 37, Isaiah 2. We're familiar with that. And so the next logical step, if you're the Messiah, is to establish your kingdom. That's what the scriptures say. And imagine the shock as Jesus says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. And then he ascended into heaven and he was gone. What a shock that was to these characters. And so it says, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven. They were probably, their mouths were open going, I don't believe it. He's gone. Now the question arises, why did Jesus ascend into heaven? We have become so familiar with the Apostles' Creed that some of you don't even ask that question anymore, but it's an important one. Why did Jesus ascend into heaven? Certainly the disciples wished he wouldn't have. Remember after Jesus rose from the dead, was walking with the two from, the, from Emmaus on the way back to Jerusalem? And as Jesus was talking with them, it says they constrained him and said, stay with us. That's what we would like to do. Oh Lord, stay with us. If Jesus were visible to us, it seems like that would solve millions of our frustrations and problems, wouldn't it? I mean, think of the early disciples. Every time they had a problem, Jesus was there to be the master of every trial and situation. They're going across the Sea of Galilee. One of those freak storms comes through the canyon of the horns of Hattin and the water is stirred up. And they freak out. Now, there have been a lot of people who have been in those kind of circumstances, but these guys had Jesus on board. What do you do when you're in a storm and Jesus is on board? Wake the guy up. He can handle this. And they did. And he calmed the storm. Wonderful. The IRS asks the disciples one time about paying taxes. Got to get that money in. What do you do? Talk to Jesus. Jesus says, go get a fish. First one you open up, there's money in it. Pay taxes. Wow. Wouldn't that be great? A check to the IRS for your amount. It seems like it would be the most wonderful thing to have Jesus around physically forever. Why did Jesus ascend into heaven? Number one, from heaven, he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And we already discussed this. Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go away. Because if I don't go, then I can't send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. And so Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. He is surveying the battle from heaven. And he is directing the battle through us. The Holy Spirit is now in you and you and you and you and all of you who believe in him. No more a localized ministry, a worldwide ministry. And the Lord is able to direct His body as the head from heaven to do His work on the earth. So that's number one. There's another reason why He ascended into heaven. I believe it's so that our heart 
our vision, our life would look heavenward. And not just on the mundane areas of this life, but that we would get homesick for heaven. I've heard people say, you Christians can become so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Well, you know what? You can become so earthly minded that you're no heavenly good. And all you do is see the limited, the mundane, the temporal. Paul the Apostle says that our citizenship is in heaven and that we should not set our affections on things of the earth but on things above. So I believe Jesus ascended into heaven. Our Savior's there. Our altar is there. Our great high priest is there. Everything that is precious and real to us is in heaven. And every Christian I've ever known who has his act together gets homesick for heaven. Now, I have met a few people, actually, who've complained and get scared that the rapture would come before they get married or before they buy that new house. I'm serious. How dare the Lord deprive them of their earthly joy and temporal pleasure? But if you're in tune with the Lord, you are a little bit homesick as you walk through this earth. You hear the call of God. You read the Scriptures that one day you're going to see Jesus face to face. That He's going to interrupt history. And you're going to see Him. And He intercedes at the right hand of the Father for you. And you think, I want to get out of here. Not, I want to escape route. But I know that I'm bound toward heaven. And by the way, I just want to address that. Some people will say, you Christians are escapists. You betcha. You betcha. Does that mean that Christians are inactive? No. Because the Bible says that that hope is what purifies us toward godly living now, here and now. Because we know the Lord could come back very soon at any time, and that hope doesn't make us sit back and just sort of, you know, drink pineapple juice all day, waiting for the Lord to return while we chalk up a lot of bills on our MasterCard, knowing that the Lord's going to come back soon anyway, and we won't have to pay them off. Waiting for the soon return of the Lord does not make a person a slob or lazy or indolent or irresponsible. It makes a person focused on getting the gospel out, contributing to humanity by preaching the gospel, but knowing my hope is in heaven. It turns our hearts toward home, toward heaven. And also we mentioned another reason is that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, third reason, praying for you interceding for you. Now, I hope you've realized this by now, but you and I need all of the help that we can get. And isn't it wonderful when you have a brother or sister come up to you and say, the Lord laid you on my heart lately. I've been praying for you. I've been praying this and this and this in your life. You go, that's great. And what do you tell people when they say, hey, how are you doing? What can I do for you? Your usual response is, pray for me. Isn't it awesome to think that Jesus is praying for you? The Son of God Himself sitted right next to the, to the Father at the right hand. All He has to do is turn over and say, Father, I want to pray and I want to talk about this person, my child to you. And it says in Hebrews, He ever lives to make intercession for us. So the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven was important. And fourth, it's to get us to live by faith and not by sight. Have you ever thought for just a moment if Jesus were alive today physically on the earth, it would be the most, it'd be pandemonium, it'd be ridiculous. Every human being on the planet earth would struggle and fight to get into his presence. At least in the Christian church. To lay our sick before him. To look into his eyes, to hear his teaching. I mean, forget church. Let's go to Jesus. He's speaking over here at this place this week. It would actually be ridiculous. Jesus, in leaving the planet Earth, ascending into heaven, causes us, like Paul says, to live by faith and not by sight. And Peter said, Whom having not seen, yet we love with joy unspeakable, full of glory. Now, there will come a day when you'll see his face. 
And that's exactly the next promise that the disciples hear. Jesus ascends into heaven and they think, oh, wow, he's gone. And then, while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, no doubt two angels, who said, men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you have seen him go into heaven. Ever since that promise was made, the church has looked for Jesus to come back. We've always looked for the blessed hope. It's one of the things that Christians are always looking toward. From the beginning of the early church in here all the way through. However... There have been signs predicted in the Bible of when this event would take place. And we're not going to get into all those signs tonight. We've done it in the past several times. When we go through the book of Revelation, we'll discuss them. But nonetheless, I personally believe, this is my opinion, I believe that everything necessary for the Lord to come back to earth and rapture His church is in line. I simply believe we're just biding time by God's mercy as He extends His grace and mercy out to individuals who have not yet accepted Jesus Christ. And it says in the book of Romans, when the full number of Gentiles have come into the kingdom, that the Lord's going to take us home. And so He perhaps is waiting for you tonight. We don't know. But if he is, get with it. So we can see him. Now whenever you talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ, uh, you get mixed emotions. Some people get irritated just hearing that doctrine. They've been raised in a certain church that spiritualizes it, or they tend to think that's wacky and way out and it's a fairy tale. And so they just get kind of agitated when you mention it to them. Perhaps also because of ignorance. They just don't know too much about it and it sounds weird, but they've never studied it out. That's one reaction. Other people get really excited. People who know exactly what it is get stoked. They're excited to know that the Lord's coming back for them. Then there's other people who are scared. Because they kind of wonder, you know, their life really isn't in order. The fact that Jesus would come back personally, visibly, and that they would have to give an account to God makes some people shudder. And it should. If their life really isn't right with God. If they haven't accepted the provision that God has made through Jesus Christ. But, the second coming of Jesus Christ is one of those things in the Scripture that you just can't overlook. You just can't shut your eyes to. Let me give you a few uh, reasons why. One out of 30 verses in the Bible speaks about the second coming, the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. One out of 30. In 216 chapters in the New Testament, there are 300 references in the New Testament alone to the physical return of Jesus to the earth. Four books in the New Testament out of 27 alone, only four, makes no mention of the second coming. The rest do. Which means one-twentieth of the entire Bible speaks about the return of Jesus Christ to the earth. You just can't close your eyes to it, hoping it will go away. It won't, and He won't. He's coming. Now, the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're going to kind of explore this tonight and look at different scriptures. Because this is important. Jesus left, the disciples saw it, and the angel promised in exactly the same way or in like manner that Jesus left, He's going to return. Not spiritually, physically, bodily, geographically, in clouds of glory, just like He left. It's all very important. The second coming, when Jesus visibly comes to the earth, will usher in what is called the kingdom age, also known in the New Testament as the millennium. Listen to this promise in the Old Testament. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. 
Nation will not lift up sword against nation, neither will they learn to war anymore. That's Isaiah chapter 2. That's the ultimate climax of history when Jesus comes to the earth, establishes his kingdom, and you talk about peace. I mean, you see a glimmer of hope when the wall is kind of shut down over in Germany, and the East Germans come over to West Germany, all right, a little more peace. Well, when the Prince of Peace comes to this earth and establishes his kingdom, the world will have never known a peace just like that. They will beat their swords into plowshares. It says also in Isaiah, the lamb will lay down with the lion. That there will be total peace among the animal kingdom, among men. We'll get along with each other. Won't that be a gas? We'll get along with each other. That's wonderful to me. You know, the church is the next best thing to that heavenly unity. At least it should be. The world can't get along with each other in the natural realm. The church should get along, even though we're different. We have different ethnic backgrounds. We have different modes of thinking, different educational backgrounds, different positions in life. We should be able to get along and love each other. sad thing is we don't. The glorious thing is, is one day we will. That's a promise worth waiting for. Now, when we talk about that future event, we divide it up into two stages. This kind of confuses people, but it shouldn't. We're going to kind of explore this tonight before the end of the hour. First of all, the rapture of the church, where Jesus comes to the air and takes his believers with him, the saints, those who trust Jesus as their Savior. And then finally, the second coming of Jesus to the earth, not in the air, but to the earth, to interrupt human history, to usher in the kingdom age, especially for the nation of Israel, to judge the nations, as it says in Matthew chapter 25. Get all that judgment stuff taken care of, and then usher in the kingdom age. Now, the Jewish people have always looked for the Messiah, and they still do. You go to Israel today, or you hang around Orthodox Jewish people, and they talk about the Messiah. The Messiah is part of their prayer books. One day the Messiah will come, he will renew, he will restore. The Jews have always believed in the Messiah. It's the one who would come, interrupt history, bring the Jews to the pinnacle of leadership in the world. Establish Israel as the center of all nations because of all of the promises in the Old Testament. It gets a bit confusing, and it got a bit confusing for the Jews, even in the Old Testament, because there were these predictions about the Messiah setting up a kingdom age. Lion and the lamb lay down together. They beat their swords into plowshares, this world peace, this wonderful government, according to the covenant of David. And yet, there was a promise of suffering And a lot of the Jewish people didn't get it, and they still don't today. And so, because of that perplexity, they saw suffering here and they saw glory here, they made up a new theology which says the nation of Israel is the servant of the Lord in the Old Testament. And so when you come to Isaiah chapter 53 that speaks of the suffering servant, it's not a man. It's the nation of Israel who suffered all of the atrocities of persecution throughout history, All the atrocities in World War II by the Nazis, that's the suffering servant. However, the language in Isaiah 53 says, He bore our transgressions, our iniquities. And it talks about a human being taking upon himself the sin of the world. It perplexed even the prophets when they wrote the stuff. Not only does it perplex some of us who try to sift through it, the guys who were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they would sit back and go, I can't figure this out. You say, how do you know that? Well, it says in the book of Peter, of this salvation, the prophets have inquired and diligently searched who prophesied of the grace that would come to you, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. And so... The coming of Jesus Christ is also in two phases. Let me let me just backtrack. 
When we speak about the second coming, you differentiate between the rapture of the church and the second coming proper, when he comes to this earth to judge the nations. Okay? The coming of Jesus Christ, as far as the Jew is concerned, especially now a Jew who believes in Jesus, distinguishes between the first coming, which is a partial fulfillment of the prophecies of the Scripture, not a total, a partial, because the kingdom in its glory is not set up yet. Jesus came, suffered, died, rose, ascended into heaven, so part of the Scriptures are fulfilled. One day He will return and fulfill the rest of the Scriptures of the kingdom age. The reason, folks, it gets confusing is that often the suffering and the glories are spoken about in the same passage of Scripture. Sometime on your own, read Psalm 22, which is a vivid description of crucifixion. They pierced my hands and my feet. And the description in Psalm 22 has even baffled people through the ages. It's a beautiful description. It's a horrid description, actually, of Roman crucifixion, which was invented 600 years after the psalm was written. It's a messianic psalm. It predicts Jesus on the cross. In the same psalm, it speaks about this one in glory, reigning over all the earth. Now, that would cause a prophet to scratch his head a little bit and say, I can't figure this out. How can you have somebody suffering this horrible sorrow and yet reigning over the earth? Well, the first coming and the second coming answer that question. Jesus came the first time to deal with what issue? Sin. To die on our behalf. He ascended into heaven. And that has a purpose. It's not just a waiting time. It's all of the reasons that I mentioned to you just a little while ago. That's why he ascended. But he is coming again to fulfill the rest of the scripture. Now, the cross of Jesus Christ was a monkey wrench in the thinking of the disciples. As we said, they couldn't figure it out. The disciples were what? They were Jews. When Jesus comes on the scene and he says things like this, hey, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Do you think that statement made an impact with them? Do you think they said, boy, you know, that's a real neat phrase. I'm going to write that down. When they heard that phrase, their hopes shot up to ten. They said, what? Because they had a hunch that this guy claimed to be the Messiah. And when he said, that kingdom that was spoken about through all the ages is now at hand, they went, And so the next logical step is, okay, establish your kingdom. That's why in verse 6, after the resurrection, they said, is now the time? That's the next logical step, Lord. When Jesus died on the cross, the hopes that the disciples had in Jesus were killed. Remember the two on the right to Emmaus? They were talking to each other. Jesus came along. They didn't recognize him. He said, hey, uh, what are you guys talking about? He goes, haven't you heard? You've been a stranger around Jerusalem? Haven't you heard the things that have happened? Referring to Jesus. And Jesus says, what things? He said, Jesus of Nazareth. A man tested to be a prophet among some. He was killed. And we hoped, past tense, in him. Not, we're hoping in him. We hoped in him. It's dead now. Our hopes are shot because our Savior that we trusted in to be the Messiah, to bring in the Jewish kingdom age, is gone. Now, when they found out Jesus was alive, their hopes shot back up again. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Lord, are you going to establish the kingdom now? Jesus goes, Again, they were left perplexed. The disciples had a problem, and I think it's a problem that you and I have sometimes when we read the scriptures. And that is, we don't always listen. We hear, but we don't always listen. Jesus, several times, told his disciples point blank. Now, now get this. Disciples, I am going to Jerusalem. They're going to beat me up. The chief priests and the rulers are going to put me to death on a cross. But the third day I will rise again from the dead. Now, he did that so many times you'd think it would sink in, right? 
Keep your finger here and turn over to Luke chapter 18. Verse 31. This is the third time Jesus is predicting his death and resurrection. Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things that are written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. And he will be delivered to the Gentiles, will be mocked and insulted and spit upon. They will scourge him, put him to death, and the third day he will rise again. But they understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them. They did not know the things that were spoken. So they were perplexed. When Jesus rose from the den, it dawned on them. When he ascended into heaven, they didn't catch it till later as they were waiting, as we're going to see in the next few weeks of study. During the time that Jesus walked this earth, he also told them about something called the church, something that was hidden in the past in the Old Testament. This new concept of a church, Jesus said, I will build my church. And he spoke about the church being a very real group of people who get together with imperfections, wheat among tares, the seed that is sown on various soils. He predicted that the church would grow in numbers, but that the church would actually become stale, ineffective, and rotting before his coming. He told all that. He predicted it all. And then he spoke often about the fact that he would go and return to this earth. That he would actually leave, but return. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 24. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed this house to be broken into. Therefore you also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming. Now why would he say that if he was already there? Because he had plans on coming again. Is coming at an hour that you do not expect him. And then again in John 14, you can turn to these if you'd like, you don't have to. John 14 says, Jesus says, Let's not, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Now get this, folks. The people who heard Jesus say that that day, I'm going and I'm coming. The people who heard that, the disciples, the apostles, his followers, almost all of them, In fact, all of them, as far as we know, died the most horrible, painful deaths you could imagine. They were tortured. Some of them were actually sawn in half. They were starved. They were exiled. They were burned at the stake. The early Christians were exiled into catacombs, burned at public burnings. We've told you about the atrocities of Caesar Nero, who would take Christians, put them in the skins of animals, sew them back up. The blood dripping from the skins of the animal would attract the lions who would eat the skins and the Christians alive. And yet all of them, read Fox's Book of Martyrs sometime. I commend that for your own personal reading. All of them endured with a song on their lips as they died. Why? Because they had hope that Jesus would come back and that he had a place all set up all decked out for them. And they were ready to die for that. You just don't die if you believe in a pipe dream or a fairy tale or you really don't believe in it. These guys believed that if he left, he's coming again. What a promise that is. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'll come again. You know, every time I do a funeral, I think of that scripture verse. I look into the casket. I see the shell of the person. looks familiar. I remember him in life. still looks the same, sort of. But person's not there. It's a shell. And I think of that promise. I'm going to prepare a place for you. What a house it must be 
You know, it, it took the Lord, took God six days to create the earth. And if you've traveled, you have seen that this is a beautiful place. I never get tired of nature outdoors, hanging out and seeing what God has made. Six days, snap that thing into existence. Now, if in six days he created all of this beauty, imagine what your pad must look like up in heaven. He's been working on it for 2,000 years, ever since he uttered that promise. And he ascended into heaven. I am going to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I'm coming again. That where I am, you'll be with me. All right. That's a great promise. He spoke about it often. And it's a promise for you tonight. Notice that it says, the same Jesus who was taken up from you, verse 11, will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And we alluded to that already. He's coming back personally, physically, geographically. What was the mountain he ascended from? Mount of Olives. What does Zechariah 14 say? That the Lord will descend and he will come and put his foot on the Mount of Olives that is east of Jerusalem. And the mountain will split in two. It says also in Revelation, Behold, he comes in the clouds, and every eye shall see him. Revelation chapter 1, verse 7. Jesus was lifted up in a cloud. He's coming back in the clouds. He left visibly, and he's coming visibly. Every eye shall see him. So if somebody knocks on your door gives you a magazine that happens to say Watchtower or Awake on it, and says, oh, don't you know Jesus came back secretly in 1914? Don't buy it. Because you'll say, what? It's not in any of the papers. Well, it was a secret coming. Well, Jesus said, every eye shall see him. And those also who pierced him. Moreover, Jesus said in Matthew 24, Beware of the false prophets. And if someone comes to you and says, Look, he's in the secret place. Believe it not. Neither follow them. He's coming visibly in the same way. Now there's two stages, as we mentioned. In the air and to the earth. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You're going to use your fingers for a few more verses before we close here tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verse 50, it says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. You cannot get into the kingdom of heaven, the visible presence of God, in your body. Your molecular structure can't handle it. You'd burn up, man. Moses said, Show me your glory. God said, um, I'll let you see me as I'm leaving, but you can't see my face. No man can see my face and live. So there needs to be a change. And the older you get, you say amen to that more and more. You see the physical limitations of what Paul described as a tent. Am I right? The older you get, you look in the mirror and you think, there's got to be a change. And isn't it wonderful to know that the change is going to come someday, a total metamorphosis? In fact, when it says we will be changed, the word in Greek is metamorphosis, a total physical change. So I've given up on trying to look younger. I figure, you know what? This is corruption. This thing's rotting. It's destined to rot. And I'm destined to get a new body. I don't care how it, you know, if it get a few wrinkles or hair falls out. Corruption can't put on incorruption. And it goes on and it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. A early Christian phrase or word speaking of death. Not soul sleep. Death. Physical separation. But we shall all be changed. Metamorphosis in Greek. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, incorruptible, and we shall be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, this mortal must put on immortality. Notice it says, we shall all be changed. It says that twice. We need to be changed, we will be. Now what's going to happen? Well, turn now to First Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4, that classic passage on the rapture of the church. You probably have this 
outlined or underlined in your Bible, perhaps. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now keep something in mind as you're turning there. The rapture is for the church. It is not for Israel. It is not for the nations, the Gentile nations at large. It's a special, distinct favor for his church in keeping with his character. It says in verse 13, and we have some beautiful principles outlined here. I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep. There's the phrase again, and if you have a margin in your Bible, either a center margin or side, it says, uh, who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So first of all, be informed. I don't want you to be ignorant. Don't, as a Christian, plead ignorance and say, well, I don't understand any of that rapture, second coming stuff. He says, don't be ignorant. Isn't it amazing the two things that Paul says specifically not to be ignorant about, so often we plead ignorance. He says, I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning the coming of the Lord, number one. I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning spiritual gifts. Talk about confusion in both of those areas. I think he knew. Then it says, and this is beautiful, that lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Be informed. Don't sorrow like people who have no hope. Now, that doesn't mean a Christian can't sorrow. I get kind of uh, upset when a Christian dies, anybody dies, and someone who's left turns to a relative or friend and says, No, don't cry. Especially Christians say, No, don't cry, they're in heaven. Well, that's wonderful for them, but I'm left. And there's nothing wrong. It's the most natural thing to do to have sorrow and to cry. God gave you what are called lacrimal ducts. They produce tears, a physiological response. God wouldn't have put them in your head unless he wanted you to use them. So don't tell people, don't cry. Let them do it. Let them mourn. But there's a difference between sorrowing and sorrowing like the world that has no hope. Christian sorrows differently. He sorrows, yes, but it's bittersweet. Because there's that promise. And I've done funerals. I've watched people, their tears stream down their face in the most heart-wrenching agony. And yet, when you speak to them the promises of God, I've seen them nod and amen and affirmation, knowing that's right. It's sweet. It's a different kind of sorrow. Verse 14, For if we believe that Jesus died, rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep, those who have died. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up Greek word is harpazo. In Latin, rapturus or rapture. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and thus we will always be with the Lord. Notice the next verse. Therefore comfort one another with these words. You see, that's what kept him going. Hey, you tell each other that truth often. And you know, the early church did that. I mentioned that they were martyred for their faith. The Christians had a buzzword back then in Greek. In fact, it's in the Bible. It says Maranatha. It means the Lord's coming. And when they would bid farewell to each other, they'd say Maranatha. In other words, the Lord's coming. Stay in fellowship with Him. The Lord's coming. Look up. The Lord's coming. You're suffering, but the Lord's coming. That's what kept Him going. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. i got to admit something to you. The first time I heard somebody tell me about the rapture of the church, I thought they were kind of bozo. I was a brand new Christian. I was two weeks old in the Lord. And I didn't know about the end of the world. I figured, you know, it's just going to end. I don't know how. But they said, well, the Lord's going to come and we're going to be kind of lifted up in the air, caught up together in the clouds. And I said, man, you're nuts. That's the wildest thing. Have you eaten burritos or something and dreamed this last night? And they said, it's in the Bible. I said, show me. 
The guy said, all right. Opened up to this passage. And I read it and I thought, that's the wildest thing in the world. But it will happen. I will go and I will come again. And it's in two distinct phases. The rapture of the church here. Those who are alive, and here's the order. First, he descends from heaven with a shout. Second, the dead in Christ, those people who are Christians who have died, your loved ones, who are in the presence of the Lord, but a time will come for their body to be changed. Or it could mean that the dead in Christ will rise first, meaning they have already risen with the Lord. That's two interpretations. Third, we who are alive for that event, for the rapture. Let's say if the Lord were to come tonight, what would happen is we would be caught up together with them. With who? The people who have died in Christ. In the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Oh, I can't wait. All of a sudden, twinkling of an eye. Lord, it's you. It's really you. I mean, I've read about this. I heard about this is amazing. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, after the reunion called the rapture, when you get together with all your loved ones who have died in Christ, and isn't that wonderful? Those people you know, your sons, your daughters, your moms, your dads who have known Jesus, the Lord is waiting for them and He's waiting for you. And whether by death or whether by rapture, we're going to get over there and have a big reunion. We're going to see them again. We will know We will know people, it says, even as we are known. We'll know. Somebody once said, well, will you recognize your friends and relatives in heaven? Charles Spurgeon answered that the best. He said, do you think I'm going to be more stupid then than I am now? I mean, if I recognize them now, I'm going to recognize them in heaven, don't you think? Now, during that reunion, I believe, my opinion is that there will be what is called the Great Tribulation Period that lasts seven years. I believe that the Lord will come back for His church before the Tribulation. He will take us up to meet the Lord in the clouds. There will be a time called Jacob's Trouble. It lasts seven years. Fury, wrath, hell, judgment is poured out upon the earth, partially self-induced by man's activity. Also a judgment from God on a Christ-rejecting world. During that time, the church will be caught away with the Lord. After the seven-year period, Jesus Christ will visibly, physically, touch His foot down on the Mount of Olives, ushering in all of the promises that He made in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, in Deuteronomy, the regathering of the land, the Son of David sitting upon the throne to rule and to reign in righteousness. The vision of Daniel will be fulfilled when he saw the rock cut out of heaven, smiting that statue, breaking it to pieces, setting up an everlasting kingdom that will never be destroyed, and ushering in the millennium. Total, perfect peace. And what can we expect? It says in Isaiah 2, they will beat their swords into plowshares. All of the nations, it says, will go up to Jerusalem. Now, if you haven't been able to see Israel yet, you will. Don't worry about it. You'll see it in all its glory, not in all of its, you know, antiquity and and that kind of stuff. You'll see the new Jerusalem. You'll see Israel. You think, wow. You know, the only advantage of going first is you have something to compare it with. But you'll see it one day. And then finally, we close in the book of Acts. After that promise... That Jesus would come back soon. It's back to life. And that's an important factor. It's back to life. As soon as they got that promise, it says they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. They went into the upper room. They were together. And it says in verse 14, they continued with one accord. There was unity there in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. Incidentally, this is the last we hear of Mary in the New Testament. She's never spoken of again. She was with the disciples, no doubt taken care of by the disciples, by John. Jesus gave John the duty from the cross. This is your mom. Take care of him. I'm passing on the responsibility to take care of my aging mother. 
She's with the disciples. She's mentioned here. She's never mentioned again in Scripture. She's never spoken about, never prayed to. It's dropped. Nothing is said. But notice that they were with one accord and they were in prayer and supplication. You know, Jesus said, after he talked all about his coming, he said, occupy till I come. Don't just wait around and think, I'm not going to do anything because the Lord's coming back. But to get involved and to occupy and to make a difference in this world until he does come back. And so they went back. They got together. They prayed. They got direction from the Holy Spirit and they moved. It's been 2,000 years and he hadn't come back. And of course, people will say, see, they thought he was coming and he didn't come. That was 2,000 years ago. Well, it's 2,000 years sooner now, isn't it? God has a wonderful plan. I was sure that by 1975 we'd be out of here. I just, you know, when I found out about this stuff and I looked in the scriptures, I thought, we're going, the world's going downhill. Lord's coming back. Then I thought, you know, after 80, there's just no way. It's 1989. 1990 is upon us. Aren't so many of you glad that the Lord waited to snatch you out? To bring you with Him? Why does He wait so long? The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's a gracious God. That's why He waits. And we bless Him for it. And maybe He's waiting for you tonight and you're holding back. Stop it. Stop it. Give your life to Him. Not just for that cause, but because He made your life and He knows what's best for it. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that Jesus came to this earth. We're also very thankful that He left this earth and that He's at the right hand, Your right hand, praying, interceding for us, our perfect mediator, our great high priest, presenting His blood before the altar. Total atonement has been made for our sins. We rest in that, Lord. Yet, Lord, we're excited. We're homesick. Knowing that our Savior's coming. And with all of the signs that Jesus spoke about in Matthew 24, they're so lined up, we believe Your coming is upon us. You said everyone who has this hope of Your coming purifies himself even as you are pure. I pray, Lord, that that desire to see you come, that desire to be with you would motivate us toward being involved, toward godly living, but always keeping our sights set on heaven. For our citizenship is in heaven, from where we look for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ.